0: It was different it was was something that you kind of thought that it could uh, could go different direction you wanted it to go the direction where let's say that jesse and the kids just left because she was trying to get away from an abusive husband but of course in the end it turned out that that wasn't at all Uh, it was lewis who killed his wife and, and killed his kids and to this day he's the one that knows where they are and he refuses to tell anybody of their whereabouts
1: That was Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Pagliari discussing his interview with convicted triple murderer Luis Toledo, who killed his wife and her two children in their Deltona home five years ago this week. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll give an update on the case involving a former New Smyrna Middle School teacher who was accused of having sex with an eighth grader. Last week, she pleaded guilty to her charges and faces up to 10 years in prison. Later, I'll discuss the shocking murder of a mother and her two children at the hands of a former gang member, Luis Toledo. 28-year-old Yasenia Juarez and her two children, ages 9 and 8, disappeared from their home on October 23, 2013. Their bodies have never been found, but detectives gathered enough evidence to charge Toledo who was convicted and sentenced to life in prison earlier this year. My guest for that segment will be Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Pagliari and News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. But first, I'll discuss the sentencing of a hit-and-run driver who killed a British tourist three years ago in South Beach. During the morning of October 13, 2015, Andrew Hamilton was walking along the intersection of Collins Avenue and 11th Street in Miami Beach. It was shortly after 2.30 a.m., and the 27-year-old Welshman was enjoying South Beach for the first time in his life. The Miami Herald reported that Hamilton wasn't even supposed to be on the trip. A group of friends begged him to go at the last minute after someone else in their group had dropped out of the package deal. As he walked across the street, a BMW convertible rammed him down. The driver was traveling at 90 miles per hour, an astonishing speed considering he was traveling down State Road A1A. Even though it was 2.30 in the morning, the driver was careening through what is perhaps the densest tourist spot in South Beach, aside from the actual beach. It took nine months for police to catch up with that driver, 26-year-old Frank Strawn. On Wednesday, Strahn was sentenced to 10 years in prison on charges of vehicular homicide and leaving the scene of a fatal accident. Prosecutors said Strawn was driving a silver 2012 BMW 650i convertible. He exited the Royal Palm Hotel parking garage at a high rate of speed, which alerted the attention of a Miami Beach police officer. He made a U-turn with the intention of pulling him over. Instead of slowing down, Strawn sped up and he wove in and out of traffic as he approached the intersection where Hamilton was walking. According to police, the impact was so violent that Hamilton was dismembered. His body went flying nearly 60 yards. The Herald reported that Strawn himself was a tourist from New York. Moments after the collision, he ditched the car and ran off. Video surveillance from one of the hotels at the intersection captured the crash. Another video camera at the Royal Palm actually captured Strawn returning to his hotel room and then leaving the hotel, according to the Herald. Strawn fled to Georgia and was captured the following summer. When he was arrested, he admitted to everything. Hamilton was raised in a small town called Saltney, near the Wales-England border and not far from Liverpool. Hamilton's parents flew in from the United Kingdom to attend Wednesday's hearing and to confront their son's killer for the first time. His father, John Hamilton, said Strawn has shown no remorse for killing his son. He said Strawn had his chance to own up to it, but he chose not to. At times, John Hamilton turned and stared directly at the defendant. When it came time for Strawn to speak, the elder Hamilton refused to listen. According to the Herald, he stormed out of the courtroom. Strawn addressed the court, but his voice was so soft it was barely audible on the video that was played on the Miami Herald website. During his statement, Strawn said in part, quote, I'm sorry. It was a big accident. It wasn't intentional. I just want to say I'm sorry. Coming up, An update on the New Smyrna Beach Middle School teacher accused of having sexual relations with an 8th grader. (music) Stephanie Peterson will face between 5 to 10 years in prison after admitting in court Tuesday that she had sex with a 14-year-old student and texted him lewd photos of herself. I profiled the Peterson case on this podcast in March. It was a story that generated national attention. As part of a plea deal, the 27-year-old ex-teacher at New Smyrna Beach Middle entered a guilty plea to one count of lewd or lascivious battery sex act with a child and one count of transmission of harmful material to minors by electronic means. In exchange for those guilty pleas, prosecutors dropped a second count of lewd and lascivious battery. Circuit Judge Raul Zambrano refused to let Peterson enter a no-contest plea. He does not allow for those for defendants charged in sex cases. Even though Peterson is facing five to 10 years, her attorneys are expected to argue for a sentence below the five-year threshold, known as a downward departure sentence. Peterson remains out on bail. Detectives said Peterson's sexual relationship with the student began in November 2017. The teen told his parents he would sneak out at night and she would pick him up and drive him to her house in Edgewater. At the time, Peterson was married. The two had sex there, as well as in her vehicle and inside a barn on his parents' property. The boy was told by Peterson that he couldn't tell anyone about the relationship or else they'd both get in trouble. The boy's grades suffered after the relationship started. Detectives said Peterson sent the boy nude images of herself using Snapchat. When she was told that the boy's mother learned about her relationship, Peterson sent a number of desperate text messages to the boy. At one point, she told him she hated him. In another message, she asked whether she should call his mother. Then another time, she told him to delete everything. In one of her messages to her accuser, Peterson wrote, Please tell your mom it was the worst decision of my life, and I know it, and I don't know where my brain was. Peterson was the boy's 7th grade science teacher, but their relationship didn't start until after he started the 8th grade. When his parents got suspicious, they immediately suspected Peterson because they knew he spent a lot of time in her classroom. Authorities said Peterson took the boy's virginity. Peterson was first hired as a substitute teacher in Volusia County in 2010. She joined the staff at New Smyrna in 2016. Shortly before her arrest, she divorced her husband and resigned from the school district. Following the hearing Tuesday, Peterson declined to comment. She was accompanied at the hearing by members of her family, including her father, a local attorney. Peterson's 14-year-old accuser was not in court, but some of his family members were, and they too declined to comment after the hearing. A sentencing hearing has not yet been set for Peterson. After she is sentenced, Peterson could be declared a sex offender and be required to register as such. She could be charged with a felony if she fails to do so. Coming up the story about Luis Toledo, a former gang member convicted of killing his wife and her two children.
0: You really don't understand the the seriousness of something like this, the magnitude until you get there and then you start getting all the parts and pieces and then it goes from a regular, in a sense,
1: missing person case
0: to something that just starts, uh, makes you question what really could have happened here.
1: There again was Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Pagliari talking about the call he received about a mother and her two children who came up missing five years ago Tuesday. It started out as a missing persons case. The first of more than 100 stories published in the news journal about the case was a short one. And the headline read quote, Public's Help Sought in Finding Missing Deltona Mom children. The missing people were 28-year-old Yesenia Suarez, known by her friends and family as Jesse, and her 9-year-old daughter, Falia Otto, and her 8-year-old son, Michael Otto. Deputies went to Jesse's home the morning of October 23rd at the request of a family member. Her husband, Luis Toledo, had accosted Suarez the previous day at her workplace in Lake Mary, He had fled the scene before Lake Mary police could arrest him. According to the family member, Jessie had not been heard from since the night of that attack by her husband, and that was on a Tuesday. Another ominous sign was that the children did not report to school Wednesday morning. When detectives showed up at the house that Wednesday, they were overcome by a strong bleach-like smell. Some blood evidence, a very small amount, also was found in the master bathroom. Toledo was arrested by authorities when he showed up at the house later. He was brought to the Volusia County Branch Jail. Pagliari was one of the first people from the sheriff's office to speak to Toledo. When I got the
0: phone call, uh, myself and and my partner, uh, it was, hey, you need to respond over here to the house over in Deltona in reference to a missing person case Uh, with a mother missing and her two children, and it involved uh, an individual, Louis Toledo, who has had a checkered past, uh, a violent past, and we need to question him to find out what he may or may not know.
1: Pagliari did not take an aggressive posture with Toledo. He knew that wasn't going to help matters.
0: At that point, after I'd gotten over to Daltona, kind of talked to my colleagues a little bit, got a little bit of background as to what we knew at the time. And then I came over to our operations center here in Daytona and brought Lewis out of the jail because he had been arrested on an unrelated charge, unrelated to our investigation for the missing person part. Uh, and then it was just me asking him for help uh, in terms of where does he think that his family could be. And then we started diving into their background, Lewis and Jesse's background, relationship issues, things that had happened the day before. certain nailing down timeline as to where uh, Lewis says he last saw Jesse and the kids.
1: Pagliari's first interview with Toledo was more like an intelligence mission for the veteran investigator. He wasn't interested in turning up the heat on a suspect and wasn't thinking long-term about whether he would get enough evidence for a death sentence, life sentence, or any prison time. He was interested in finding Toledo's wife and stepchildren. The two talked for a while before Toledo told him he wanted to end the interview. It was late and he needed some help. The two resumed their conversation the following morning. Toledo's behavior changed from day to day. On that first day, he conveyed to law enforcement that his wife had left him. On day two, he was giving off a very different vibe.
0: When he sat across the table from me and I uh, showed him some photographs of his, of his family, because I believed from day one, our first interview, that he, he held them uh, very close. And so he looked at them for a while and then we sat in silence. And then his body language had changed dramatically. From day one, he was somewhat confident. Uh, and then day two, he begins to show what I would consider guilt and that something was weighing heavily on him.
1: Investigators continued their search that day, but they knew what they were searching for. They were searching for the bodies of a young mother and her two children. It was no longer search and rescue. It was search and recovery. I spoke with news journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez, who covered the case extensively from Toledo's first quarter parents through his sentencing hearing earlier this year. He said the search radius was overwhelming for authorities, who sought help far and wide. How extensively did they search for these bodies? A lot. They they searched uh,
2: quite a bit. I think if if I'm remembering the, the figure correctly, it's like 90 square miles in uh, in that area in Seminole and Volusia County. Um, so they spent a lot of time searching for them. They uh, I think the Texas-based uh, Equal Search came over and helped. Some other groups I'm sure were over helping as well. So they spent a lot of time searching for them. Um, they um, they you know it's like ninety square miles, a lot of a lot of terrain, and unfortunately they, they came out empty.
1: The family lived at 317 Covent Gardens Place in a neighborhood off DeBerry Avenue, just north of Lake Monroe in Deltona, a suburb of Orlando. Toledo had met Jesse years earlier at a festival. It was there that Jesse was roughed up by someone else, and Toledo, according to what Pagliari told me, stepped in and helped her. From that moment on, Toledo saw himself as a protector for Jesse, and apparently Jesse felt the same way. The two fell in love and got married. Toledo was close to the children, he would play video games with Michael and would help Thalia practice her cheers for her cheerleading squad. The domestic dynamic between Toledo and Jesse was unusual in the sense that Toledo stayed at home with the kids, her kids, and she worked full time and also attended college. Jesse was studying at Rollins College in nearby Winter Park and she was only months away from attaining her degree. In spite of his attempts at being Mr. Mom, Toledo could never escape his darker past and never could overcome his violent tendencies. Toledo was in prison from June 2004 to April 2008 for a 1999 armed robbery and kidnapping in Broward County, but he served that time while under the name Michael Garcia. Prior to that, in 2000, he was charged in Orange County with attempted second-degree murder, robbery with a firearm, aggressive battery with a deadly weapon, and kidnapping to inflict harm. But the following year, prosecutors dropped all charges. He also was charged with other violent felonies in 1997 and 1999. There was also one other startling disclosure about Toledo's violent history. In June 2012, just 16 months prior to the murders, Toledo was accused of threatening another woman. She filed a temporary injunction against him. She accused him of sending her dozens of emails and text messages containing threats to her and her children. That temporary injunction was dismissed later that month. Toledo told investigators that he left his criminal past behind. More specifically, he had nothing to do any longer with the Latin Kings, a street gang he had been associated with. He was reportedly a high-ranking member of it at one time. Here again is A.J. Pagliari.
0: I do know that he was a Latin King member. Um, I was told that he was a a rather high-ranking member uh, of the gang, that uh, I believe he had taken on some kind of enforcer role within that, uh, that criminal enterprise
1: during that first interview with Pagliari. Toledo swore he never hurt Jesse or her children. He even said that his father always taught him to never strike a woman. As I mentioned before, he was far more forthcoming during the second interview, even describing how he harmed Jesse. He didn't tell the whole truth, according to Pagliari, but detectives got a sense of what happened to Jesse.
0: Well, I, we can only say what Lewis tells us and Lewis says that Jesse his wife was killed when he he struck her uh, with a violent blow to the throat and somehow crushed her windpipe or did some kind of damage to the the air to her throat area that caused her to stop breathing and so uh, that's his story for her
1: Toledo was a fighter he had a background in boxing and in mixed martial arts He was once an enforcer with the Latin Kings. He told Pagliari that he knew his own strength, meaning he knew what kind of damage he could inflict on Jesse if he ever struck her. He hit hard. His nickname was a reflection of how well he used his fists. Here again is Frank Fernandez.
2: He does have some kind of boxing, martial arts training, and he would... Uh, call. He was called semi because supposedly he hit like a truck.
1: Toledo's marriage had become strained. His wife felt he was neglecting his duties at home. He spent a lot of time playing video games and not just with his stepson. He played often with his next door neighbor, Tyshawn Jackson, who would turn out to play a critical role in the investigation into the triple murder. But the biggest reason for the disintegration of the marriage was Jesse's affair with a coworker. That co-worker also happened to be married, and he and Jesse forged ahead with their secret relationship. Toledo discovered the affair and went ballistic. He confronted his wife at her workplace on October 22, 2013. That was when someone called police worried that Toledo might seriously harm Jesse. He bolted before police showed. Jessie drove with her two children to her mother's house that night. Toledo showed up and the couple talked. It seemed he had calmed down enough to have an adult conversation. They mutually agreed to end the marriage, but Toledo had his own idea on how it was going to end. Jessie's mother, Felicita Perez, pleaded with her daughter to stay with her that night but Jessie wanted to sleep in her own bed. So she drove home and took her children with her. Shortly before 1 a.m., she finished speaking on the phone with a man she was having an affair with. Five hours later, around 6 a.m., Toledo started tapping on the window of his neighbor's bedroom. Jackson got out of bed, and Toledo asked him to help him move his wife's vehicle. It was during that five-hour window on October 23, 2013 that Toledo murdered his wife and children. Toledo drove his wife's Honda while Jackson followed in Toledo's vehicle. Toledo parked the car in a shopping center in Seminole County, where it was later recovered. Detectives surmised that Toledo placed the victims' bodies into the trunk of Jesse's car and drove them somewhere. They later found sand in the car, but the samples they recovered were too common to help them pinpoint any location. It was the same kind of sand one can find just about anywhere in Florida. By the time Jackson helped Toledo, those bodies had already been hidden somewhere. Jackson was unaware of what he was doing, according to the sheriff's office. He simply felt he was helping a friend. It wasn't until he was questioned by Pagliari that he fully realized what he was involved in. Toledo had tried to make things worse for Jackson, much worse. He claimed that it was Jackson who killed Jesse's kids. Here is Pagliari describing his interview with Jackson.
0: He was rather calm and collected about things. He didn't he didn't seem to be on edge. And I said, "Well, would it be any surprise to you that Lewis is saying that you were there when the uh, when the murders occurred, and that it's you who killed his children?" And he immediately became very defensive, you know, somewhat emotional. And he, uh, I would classify it as he acted appropriately to the questions uh, in terms of a person who was being accused of uh, of murder. Uh, And my takeaway from his interview was that Tyshawn Jackson was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got mixed up in something that he had no idea of the actions that Lewis had taken prior to Tyshawn having gotten involved.
1: Jackson was never charged with a crime. He told detectives and later testified at Toledo's trial that he saw Toledo drive his own Saturn to a dumpster after he had parked Jesse's car in Seminole. Toledo took something out of the trunk and placed it in the dumpster, but Jackson wasn't close enough to see what it was. Also, during the drive back to Deltona, Toledo uttered something to Jackson. He said, quote, I just snapped. Jackson seeing Toledo place those items in the dumpster was critical to detectives. They went back there and found cleaning products, the truck mat for Jesse's car, and a pair of boots belonging to Toledo. A trace of Thalia's blood was on one of those boots. They also found a drop of her blood on the trunk mat. That was more than they found at the house, which amounted to just one sample of blood belonging also to Thalia. As I mentioned before, Toledo tried to convince Pagliari that Jackson killed Jesse's children. He even described how Jackson killed them by using the blunt end of a hatchet-like tool. Here again is Pagliari talking about the deaths of those children and why he thinks Toledo refused to admit that he was the one who killed them.
0: Unfortunately, the only one person who survived the incident is Lewis. Uh, And Lewis is less than forthcoming when it it came to talking about the death of the children. Uh, And I personally think that he just can't come to grips with the fact that he killed kids. And that Lewis killed kids in such a a brutal manner that it's unforgivable. You you can't kill anybody in the first place. that's That's a despicable act. Um, but to kill children, I don't, I don't know how anybody comes back from that, I don't know how anyone can even justify that, or he can even think about that.
1: And even he was ashamed of that? I believe so.
0: I believe that's why he placed that, that one crime on, or that one incident on, Tyson Jackson.
1: Authorities think that Toledo murdered his stepchildren for the simple reason that they witnessed him killing their mother and he didn't want any witnesses left behind. The News Journal reported in a story just a few days after Toledo's arrest that he tried to commit suicide inside the op center. During a break in his interview, he went to the bathroom, at which time he broke the mirror and tried to use shards of glass to cut himself and bleed out. He was rushed to a local hospital for treatment, and he survived. During the weeks after Toledo's arrest, search parties continued looking for the bodies. They searched from the sky, they searched from horseback, and there were search parties who went underwater. There was no trace of them anywhere. To this day, the bodies have remained missing, and that remains a source of grief for Jesse's family.
2: It's a terrible, terrible situation. I mean, the grandmother is still hoping Obviously, she's never giving up, hoping that someday somebody will come forward with some information that will lead to where her family is or that Toledo will have a change of heart and, you know, reveal it.
1: Toledo was indicted in January 2014 on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. The latter charge was for Jesse's murder, while the more severe charges, the ones that carry a death sentence, were for the children. Toledo also was indicted on a tampering charge. In the fall of 2017, Toledo finally stood trial for the murders. It was held in St. Augustine, two counties north of Felucia County. It was moved because of the media attention the case generated. One of the main witnesses at the trial was Pagliari, who said on the stand, quote, Luis Toledo killed everybody. That quote was the headline in the news journal the next day. Pagliari did not pull any punches while on the stand. He was every bit as straightforward when he spoke to me over the phone last week.
0: You don't think it happens to children. And you don't think people could do something like that. Uh, But it was done. And... It was Louis Toledo who did that. And so I sat across looking at a man who destroyed his family and then affected the lives of many others associated to them. And I still think about that today.
1: Jackson also testified. Blood experts testified. Deputies testified. The one who opted not to take the stand was the defendant. The jury deliberated for eight hours on a verdict. And they found him guilty on all counts. They were unanimous for guilt, but not for death. Jurors voted ten to two for death. Only a unanimous recommendation can lead to a trip to death row. Toledo was sentenced in January to three consecutive life sentences. Here again is Frank Fernandez.
2: That surprised me. I I, I thought more more than I thought he'd probably get a 12 to 0 recommendation because of the fact that the jurors had agreed that he had killed two children just to, you know, in cold blood.
1: Pagliari told me that the Toledo case will stick with him for the rest of his life. One of the memories that sticks with him the most is from the first interview he had with the suspect. Toledo said something at the time that baffled him.
0: He said a few things that still, to this day, make me like scratch my head in terms of how, why would you answer a question in um, and, and the manner that he answered it, and in particular when I said you think that your family is alive, and he his response was that he feels that they're alive, and I, I've spoken about this uh, to some colleagues, and so it just you, you don't answer that kind of question by saying well I feel that they're alive it's like a very spiritualistic type thing like a person's already passed like they're already, they're, they're with you, inside you their soul per se but they're, that their actual living being on earth is no longer here and I still think about that
1: The part of this case that makes this unique to any other murder case Frank Fernandez has covered is the fact that a man was convicted of three counts of murder without any of the bodies being found. It is rare for prosecutors to move ahead with a murder trial whenever a body or bodies remains missing. The person he thinks of the most when he looks back on the case is Felicita Perez, Jesse's mother, and the children's grandmother just the sadness and the
2: continuing pain and anguish that she's going through that she's lost her daughter and her two grandchildren and and she can't even go visit their graves for I mean it's just just the horror and the anguish of it
1: Pagliari told me that Toledo's crimes warranted a death sentence, but he wasn't disappointed or angry when he learned that two jurors wouldn't go with a majority and recommend death. He also thinks that Toledo's life sentence may give him more time to change his mind about refusing to disclose where he put those bodies. Pagliari will never stop hoping for that.
0: And the fact that they didn't come back... And, and vote for death, I understood. In fact, it kind of, maybe at some point, maybe it helps us. Maybe the longer that he sits in prison for life, and I think he was in his 30s at the time, if he's there another 50 years, well, that, that's, that's more time that goes by that maybe he'll tell somebody where, where the bodies are.
1: Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Sun Crime State. Find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.